God, we are so thankful to be able to gather here this morning and to find uh, in your word encouragement and refreshment and even challenge. Lord, I pray this morning, uh, especially for those who are here today who find themselves maybe complacent in their relationship with you, maybe they're here and they're just kind of going through the motions spiritually. God, I pray that you would use this passage in all of our hearts to wake us up, to invigorate us with a white-hot worship for you. So Holy Spirit, would you take this word and bring understanding to our minds and application, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was last week, I was driving my two oldest to gymnastics, and we carpool with another family. And so we had one of my daughter's friends was in the car with us, and, uh, and one of my daughters uh, asks her friend who's in the car with us, uh, do you go to church? And, uh, and I, we, we know this family well, and we've grown to love this family. We know they have a Catholic background. And so uh, the friend didn't respond. And so I said, well, uh, she's Catholic. Her parents have a Catholic background. And my daughter asks, well, what's a Catholic? Uh, do, they, do they believe in Jesus? You know, just some light conversation on the way to gymnastics, no big deal. <laughs> Um, but it did create a, a wonderful opportunity to clarify two things with my daughters and with their friend. And these two things, I think, even become muddy for mature Christians. And those two things that I was able to, to provide clarity are, number one, what is the basis of our salvation? So like what actually saves us? And then number two, what is the role of good works in salvation and in the Christian life? Where do good works fit in the whole? And those are really important questions. Like if you get those questions wrong, or if you get them in the wrong order, that might lead you into a works-based religion. In fact, Tim Keller has famously said uh, that religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. But the operating principle of the gospel is I am accepted by God through what Christ has done, therefore I obey. That order is really important. In fact, Martin Luther, a key uh, leader in the Reformation uh, way back in the 1500s, said it this way, that imperatives in the Bible always flow out of the indicatives. Uh, the imperatives in the Bible always flow out of the indicatives. Do you remember English class? Remember uh, uh, sentence diagramming? The imperatives are commands. Indicatives are statements of fact. And so in the Bible, uh, the imperatives or these commands of what God wants us to do always flow out of these indicatives or declarations of what God has already done for us in Christ. That's really important because the Bible uh, will never call you to behave until it first calls you to behold. The Bible always wants us to behold what God has accomplished in Christ that then results in right behavior. Because when you behold, that is the pathway for becoming. And when you understand who you are in Christ, your behavior will follow. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Beholding God in his glory leads to transformation. Or you could put it this way, that you become what you behold. 
Now, the question you might be wondering is, well, what does this have to do with Titus chapter 3? That's a great question. Uh, One of the things I want you to understand about uh, kind of the direction of where Paul is going in Titus is that when we come to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, there there are all kinds of imperatives, all kinds of of commands that, that Paul lays before the Cretan church. But I want you to understand that those imperatives, those commands are actually sandwiched between two robust uh, passages of the gospel, two robust passages of indicatives. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, wonderful explanation of God's grace. Uh, And then when we get to chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, one of the most beautiful and powerful descriptions of the gospel, of the indicatives of what God has done. And what I want us to understand this morning is what, what the correct order actually is as we look at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 uh, through 8. So I'm just going to walk through these verses really phrase by phrase, kind of explain what Paul is saying, and then we'll get to the end and I'll answer why these verses matter and the correct order theologically. So let's start verses 1 uh, and 2. Again, we see these, uh, these commands or some more imperatives of what Paul wants the Cretan church to obey and, and to live out. And what I think Paul is doing here is he's actually giving evidence of a life that's been changed by the gospel. So Paul's answering the question, if God's grace has truly appeared to you, chapter 2, verse 11, If God's grace is training you to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, chapter 2, verse 12, then what does that look like in your life? What does the life that's been changed by the gospel practically look like? Well, there are four specific areas. Here's the first one in verse 1. It has to do with civil obedience. Civil obedience. Paul calls us to be submissive and obedient to governing authorities, which in Crete here, the the civil authorities were in Crete, but they were under the the larger jurisdiction of Rome. Now, this is pretty much standard for Paul. If you've read Pauline letters, you'll see that command um, throughout his letters, uh, Romans 13, 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, even Peter in 1 Peter 3. But the question is, why is this so high on Paul's list in Titus? Why does he go here Uh, uh, for the first kind of evidence of God's grace changing us. Well, one commentator described Crete this way, that the Cretans were notoriously turbulent and quarrelsome and impatient of all authority. One Greek historian said of them that they were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and civil wars. Like that's the baseline of, of Crete. And so if you're a Cretan Christian trying to put the gospel on display as beautiful and powerful, Paul is saying, obey the governing authorities. Submit yourself to them. Now, of course, inevitably, when I'm ever talking about civil obedience, I always get asked the question, and maybe you're wondering it here this morning, well, pastor, what about civil disobedience? What do we do when the government asks us to do something that goes against the scriptures or goes against our consciences. Well, the topic of civil disobedience uh, should be a sermon in and of itself, right? I can't fully address that topic here, but I will respond to that question with, with just a simple question. Why focus on the exception? Like, if that's where your mind immediately goes, is civil disobedience on this topic, 
why focus on the exception? The, the norm should be, with this topic, should be a posture of humble obedience to the structure of authority that God has established. It, it's almost like, think about it this way. If I'm doing premarital counseling with a soon-to-be husband and a soon-to-be, soon-to-be wife, and we're talking about roles within the marriage, the husband is to lead, the wife is to submit and follow her husband's uh, authority. Can you imagine if the soon-to-be wife just kept interrupting me and saying, yeah, 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 I understand that, but tell me biblically when I can you know, go against my husband's leadership. When can I disobey him? I'd be like, well, sure, there are exceptions to that, but the norm should be following and obeying. That's the same here as it comes to governing authorities. Don't focus on the exception. Focus on living an exceptional life and cultivating a humble posture of submission. Now, this is a mark of a life that's been changed by the gospel because your posture towards human authority, earthly authority, whether that's the government or whether that's in marriage or church or your employer, that ultimately reflects your posture of obedience and submission to God's authority, that God puts earthly authority in our lives so that we might reflect and display our ultimate authority to God. They are very much connected, and one informs the other. So that's the first area. The second area that provides evidence of a life that's been changed by the gospel is an eagerness toward good deeds. Notice this little phrase at the end of verse 1. He says, to be ready for every good work. Now, we've already noted over the last couple of weeks that good works is a huge theme throughout this letter. We see this emphasized in chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 7 and 14, chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 8. And we've noted that good works is an umbrella term. Paul is using that, but you can kind of slide in underneath that fruit of the Holy Spirit, kindness towards others, uh, being a servant towards the people in your life. But Paul is, is not just saying here that you need to be the type of person that's doing good works here and there. That's not Paul's aim here. The thrust of this, this command is to be the type of person who is ready for good works. He's describing a, an eagerness towards seeing and recognizing those opportunities to do good, to do good works and promptly responding. So there's almost this lean-in posture towards keeping the eyes of your heart open to those opportunities to do good to others and to actually doing them. So my question for you this morning is, does that describe you today? When you think about the the opportunities to do good in your life, are they met with this readiness and this eagerness to walking in them? Or are they met with an inward complaining and moaning? Is it met with, oh man, I'm already exhausted, I'm already depleted, and now there's this opportunity to do good, and it's not met with a readiness and an eagerness. I love Romans chapter 12. There's a verse there, verse 10, uh, that, that's so instructive for us. It, it calls us to be devoted to brotherly love to the point that you start outdoing one another and showing honor. You get this picture of this almost friendly uh, uh, competition with other believers in showing honor toward one another. 
And so just applying that to good works, we should be outdoing one another in doing good deeds. Thinking about outdoing your spouse, outdoing your coworkers in the workplace, outdoing your friends or your classmates or family members in doing good works. I think this is evidence of a life changed by the gospel because when you've grasped how good God has been to you, the result is that you'll do good toward others in your life. Well, this leads us to the third, I think, evidence of a life changed by the gospel. Now in verse 2, Paul says, to speak evil of no one. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Wow. I don't know, did anybody else's stomach drop with conviction when I just read that? Speak evil of no one? That is a tall order. Like, what a standard. Like, this just, man, I just think about this last week. Like, pause for a moment in your own life and think about how you talked about other people just this last week alone. You know what? Just think about this last weekend alone or maybe yesterday. And think through the way you talked about other people. Because we have a command here, very clear command, based on the authority of God's word, that when you talk about someone else, you should never, ever talk evil about them. Describe them in a negative, evil light. Man, that's convicting. Because when you think about it, I don't know if this is true for you, but man, my observation, maybe my own life, is We can become so loose with our words, with our tongue. And the application here is, man, when you're talking about somebody else or when you're talking with somebody, to make sure that you're not talking about other people in a negative or an evil light. And it just strikes me, I just, I wonder, why is it that we have decided that some sins that are just so clearly outlined in the Bible are for some reason just okay for us to do. Or maybe we wouldn't say they're okay. We would never audibly say that. But there are some sins that we've, we don't have the same level of urgency in cutting out and removing from our life in comparison to some other sins. And I would argue that this is one of them. And we need to be reminded this is a devastating sin. I mean, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He says, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word, every careless text, every careless social media post, every careless email. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Wow. What Jesus is saying here, you not only be judged by what you've said, but by your words, you can tell the condition of your heart. Like, there's no fooling anybody. There's no fooling God. Like, you can think that you're at a certain level maturity-wise, but all you have to do is look at your words, is this a struggle in the Beals household to the degree that we've come up with this phrase that we say often to each other? We say, your words have power. Your words 
have power. They do. They either bring life and encouragement or pain and hurts. I don't know who said it, but someone said it this way, that our words are free, but it's in the way that you use them that it may cost you. That is so very true. Well, here's a fourth area. Paul commands us at the end of verse 2 here. It's, again, evidence of a life changed by the gospel is a gentle compassion, a gentle compassion. Notice here, this is toward all people, right? Even the people that get on your nerves, right? You have to have a gentle, uh, courteous compassion toward them. Look, are are you known for being a type of person who's gentle and kind, compassionate and courteous? Or maybe you're saying to yourself right now, well, that's not how I'm wired, Chris. My personality isn't like that, right? I'm a little bit more blunt and direct and combative. I'm Enneagram type eight, right? As if that lets you off the hook in any way. Like, and I'm not asking you to change how God's wired you personality-wise. You have whatever personality you want. But the calling here is to take your personality and for it to be sanctified and refined by the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. The application here is that our interactions with other people should be soft and not have a harshness or a hardness in how we speak and our posture with other people. Man, these are, these are four areas of conviction. I don't know about you, but man, this is like, this is heavy to kind of think through. Does my life look like this? If I claim to be a Christian, Am I living these out faithfully in my life if God's grace has appeared to me? Chapter 2, verse 11. But then you get to verse 3, and I I read verse 3, and I'm just like, wait, that doesn't fit there. You go from verses 1 and 2 to 3, and it almost seems like Paul got the order wrong. Why is Paul now describing a life void of the gospel in verse 3? Why is he describing who we were before God saved us. Well, Paul here is, is trying to help us recall our desperate need of God. Uh, these are seven miserable characteristics. Right, let, me, let me just kind of go through each of them just briefly here, just so we have an idea of what he's talking about. Number one, our life before God saved us, he says that we were foolish, which means we lacked understanding. We just didn't know what was right, We lived for the here and now. That's what fools do. Number two, we were disobedient, meaning we were rebellious against God. So we lived as kings and queens in the kingdom of self, and we refused to submit to God's lordship. Number three, we were led astray. Uh, Some translations have you were actually deceived, and that's true. There's a level of self-deception or being misguided before God saved us that we would see these false promises of temptation and sin and and we'd be deceived by them and say yes to them every single time. The next one is we were enslaved by various passions and pleasures, that we just did whatever we wanted to do, not what was right, not even what was logical, but what will satisfy. The next one, we spent our time in malice and envy, just kind of spend our time uh, coveting and wanting what other people have. And if we didn't have what they had, then we spoke uh, poorly of them. The next one is having a life dominated by hate. So we no longer viewed other people as fellow image bearers. We despise them. We detest them. Man, you get to 
the end of verse 3, I mean, my goodness, there is a heaviness there. Like there, there's an, an appropriate heaviness to verse 3. But I don't want you to miss the purpose of what Paul is doing. Paul is providing such a detailed account of our condition before God saved us so that you and I would not only know intellectually, but we would experience and be reminded of our utter helplessness and our complete dependence upon God's grace in order to save us. See, Paul could have just got to verse 3 and said, for we ourselves were sinners, period, move on to verse 4. He could have done that, but he's painting such a detailed and specific description of us before God saved us so that you and I would come face to face with our spiritual depravity and our spiritual deadness, so that you and I would be convinced, utterly convinced, that I am a sinner. I am a sinner. That there aren't just sinners out there in the world. No, no, me, I am a sinner. I'm not just a good person who does bad things every once in a while. I'm not just this decent human being who messes up here and there. No, no, no. I am a sinner. I am guilty. I am a rebel. I have offended my creator. I deserve hell forever and ever. That's the purpose of verse 3. That's why Paul says, for we ourselves were these things. This is what you used to be. Man, there, there is a heaviness. You should feel the heaviness of verse 3. I, I can imagine the conversations later on today, talking with family members. Hey, how was your day at church this morning? Well, we heard a message of eternal damnation and how we all deserve it. How was yours? Like, I get it. Like, we don't like to linger in verse 3. We don't like to sit in this description of our depravity and our sin. I understand some of you are probably saying right now in your mind, okay, we get it. Move on to verse 4. Let's just bypass this stuff. Get to the good news. But there's a danger if we do that. If we don't understand verse 3, really understand and feel verse 3, then you will truncate your understanding of God's grace. Francis Schaeffer, who uh, one of the best apologists, defenders of the faith, he was asked a question by somebody. He said, Francis, if you have an hour with somebody just on the train to talk about Christianity, how would you use that 60 minutes? And he said, well, I would spend the first 50 minutes talking to this individual about his moral deadness, his dilemma, his sin. And then I'd spend the last 10 minutes talking about the grace found in the gospel. He went on, Francis Schaeffer continued, he said, I believe that much of, of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear simply because we are too anxious to get to the answer without having a man realize the real cause of his sickness, which is true moral guilt and not just a psychological guilty feeling. So the point here is that you will never appreciate the beauty in the gospel until you understand the depth of your depravity. However high you view your sin is however high you will view God's grace. And however low you view your sin is however low you will view God's grace in the gospel. 
Charles Spurgeon said it this way. It's not a sermon without Spurgeon, right? He said, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned with the rope about his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. That's so true. That's what Paul's doing here. He's setting us up for the glory of verses 4 through 7. Well, that leads us to uh, this glorious section, in my opinion, the whole letter, verses 4 through 7. Paul now unpacks beautifully the evidence of God's graciousness in the gospel. And if you thought chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 was good, this is even better. (laughs) Paul begins in verse 4 with the word but. And and with this word, we see the power and the beauty of the gospel. Without this word, but we are condemned to hell forever and ever. This word but, Paul, is setting us up to explain the, the divine response to the human dilemma. And I love verses 4 through 7. We'll get to that in a moment. But I think it is important to understand that we live in a world and a culture that wants to provide all kinds of other solutions to verse 3. That's, out, that's found outside of the gospel. Like our world does not like verses four through seven. They, they want to change verse four. They want to say, okay, here's the solution, verse four, but when, and then they might insert education. They might say, okay, the answer to verse three, we just need to educate people more, fix the educational system, make them smarter, and that will eradicate our sin dilemma. Or you might hear some people say, no, no, the answer to verse three is to look within yourself, right? We hear that narrative all the time. You watch any Disney movie, right? Follow your heart. Look within. Follow your feelings. That's the solution to man's dilemma. Or some people say, no, no, the answer is actually found in politics. Have the right policies in place, the, the right president in the White House. That will solve all of our issues. Now, church, we need to be reminded All other options to man's dilemma, verse 3, found outside of the gospel, will ultimately fail. Verse 4 through 7, these verses provide the solution to our sin problem. Verses 4 through 7 provide a comprehensive picture of God's salvation, this divine response to the human condition. I love verses 4 through 7. I've been waiting weeks to get here. Verses 4 through 7 is actually one single sentence in the Greek, in the original. One sentence, and in it, we have all of these aspects of God's saving work. We're going to see the basis of our salvation. We're going to see the effects of God's saving work. We're going to see the means and then the goal. Okay, Basis, effects, means, and goals. Look, each one at a time. Notice, number one, the basis of God's salvation Look, verse verse 5 states it so clearly. God does not save us because of our good works. That God saves us not because we are good people or because we have a little bit of good in all of us. God does not save us because of our performance or because of our future potential 
or some future version of ourselves that's somehow good and God looks out into the future and says, oh, this person's going to become like this. Let's save them. No, God saves us not because of works, but because of his mercy. God saves us because of his goodness and his loving kindness. Look, the the clear thrust of verses four through seven is that God saves us not because there's any good in and of ourselves. No, it's because of God's abundant mercy. God initiated. God sought us. God pursued us. God took the first step in making a way for us to be saved. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve salvation. And you and I, based on verse 3, we deserve condemnation. We deserve judgment. We deserve hell forever and ever. And yet, because of God's mercy, God does not leave us in verse 3. He made a way for us to be saved. It's all because of his grace and mercy. See, what's my role in salvation? My role is I did all the sinning and God does all the saving. That's what you conclude, verse three and four. Uh, God's not in verse three. I'm in verse three. You're in verse three. God's in verse four. God does the saving. I do the sinning. It's all because of his mercy. But then notice also the effects of God's initiating and saving work. Paul here, in trying to describe the impact of God's activity, he actually uses, uses three metaphors to explain the effects. He talks about regeneration and renewal in verse 5, and then he talks about justification in verse 7. So the result or the effect of God's work is that we are, number one, regenerated, uh, or some translations have re, uh, we've been reborn or rebirth. Right? This is the same concept that Jesus uh, talked about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. If you remember that conversation, he's talking to this religious leader, and he says, Nicodemus, in order for you uh, to, to enter into God's kingdom, you need to be born again. It's the same concept here. And if you remember, Nicodemus was so confused. He's like, how can I physically go back up into my mother's womb? And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not talking about being physically born again. I'm talking about being spiritually born again. Now, why is that necessary? Well, it's because you and I, we are spiritually dead in our sins before God saved us. Paul says that explicitly, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Now, how dead is dead? It's not a trick question. It is dead. Like, when you're dead, you're not moving. You're not choosing, and you're not doing any good works. And that's why this spiritual regeneration, this work of the Holy Spirit in your heart is needed for salvation. You were dead in your sins, and you needed God to make you alive in Christ. Man, what a powerful reminder of what it actually means to be a Christian. Like, to be a Christian does not mean that you've invited God into your life to to kick out some bad habits and to be a good person or, or to, like, turn over a new leaf. That's not what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is that through God's supernatural power, he has performed a miracle in your life 
by raising you from the deadness of your sin and making you alive in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. So if you're in Christ today, you're a walking miracle. God's done a miracle in your life. And I don't care about your testimony, how messy, complex, dirty it is, or how boring your testimony is. doesn't matter. God has performed, nonetheless, a miracle in your life that taking you who is dead in your sins and making you alive in Christ. Praise be to God for that. But then Paul offers a second metaphor. Again, verse 5, that we are now renewed by the Holy Spirit. This refers to an inner transformation, okay? So if regeneration is being made alive spiritually, this is an inner working, an inner transformation. So not just alive, but actually made new, okay? Both concepts you put together, and it actually speaks to the concept that Paul discussed in 2 Corinthians 5 of being a new creation, okay? The old has gone, the new is here. And then thirdly, the third effect, the third metaphor, verse 7 Uh, justification. We've been justified by his grace. Justification, this is a a forensic or legal metaphor in explaining our positional aspects in our salvation. In other words, with this metaphor, Paul basically puts all of us in this cosmic courtroom where we stand before God Almighty as the righteous judge and the verdict that's pronounced over your life is not guilty, it's not sinner, it's justified. It's you're you're free. You've been made new. And that's all because of Jesus. That Jesus took your place, he took your sin, he took your penalty, he paid for it all. So that verdict now is you are justified by his grace. That's the effect of God's saving work in our lives. Unbelievable. Okay, now we've, okay, so we've seen the basis, the, the effects. Notice now the means of this great salvation. It's actually by the Holy Spirit. This is how you become a Christian. It's through the work of him. Verse 5 speaks to the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Kind of get a glimpse of the Trinitarian participation in our salvation here. Holy Spirit shows up. Um, But Paul actually speaks to the washing here. This is a metaphor alluding to baptism, but only to speak to the spiritual cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. That's why he's bringing that up. In other words, what he's saying here is that God, the Holy Spirit, takes the finished work of Jesus and applies it to your life. And that experience, that application feels like a washing. It feels like this cleansing, right? You were dirty in your sin, and now you're being cleansed by his grace, right? To take the metaphor a step further, it's the Holy Spirit who takes the cleansing soap of Jesus's blood and washes the dirt off of your life. That's the Holy Spirit who actually does that. Okay, now finally, look at the goal of this glorious salvation. Verse seven, we are heirs who have the hope of eternal life. That's where all of this is moving towards. You have a hope for all of eternity. That's how powerful God's salvation is. It will impact you forever and ever and ever. You will always be with God. That fills us with hope. Man, you get to the end of verse 7. 
I mean, my goodness, isn't this unbelievable? I mean, Paul could have gotten to verse 4 and said, Jesus died for sinners, period, move on to verse 8. He could have done that, and that would have been unbelievable, right? That phrase is, is mind-blowing. But he provides such a detailed description of God's saving work that's meant to move us. It's meant to fill us with awe at God's work. And so if, if you're here today, really, there's kind of two responses to verses 4 through 7. Either you hear these verses and you're like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I, I kind of already knew that stuff. Okay. Sweet. Or it's the sense of being stunned. Like, God did that for me? And you, you almost can't believe in the goodness and mercy of God that he would go to such length to save you. One of two responses here this morning. And what Paul is wanting to do, he's wanting to move us in awe and this white-hot worship of God. How do I know? Well, where is the spotlight put on uh, in these verses? It's on God. Look at these verses. It says, it's God's mercy. It's God's loving kindness. It's God's goodness. God's the one who saves us. God washes us. God regenerates us. God renews us. God justifies us. God is the one who makes us heirs. God gives us hope for all of eternity. God, God, God. That's the focus, that's the spotlight in order for you and I to take the focus off of ourselves and to put it on the greatness of God. For us to, to stop being so self-focused about thinking about me, 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 and to be finally enthralled and enamored with who God is in his great mercy. So look, if you are here today and you would say, I am complacent or I'm going through the motions spiritually, man, these verses are almost written directly for you. It's meant for you just to bathe in them, to soak in them, and to sit on them until God fills you with awe and a white-hot worship for the glory of his name. And that naturally moves us to actually verse 8. I don't want to skip over verse 8. This is really instrumental, especially as we think about the order of imperatives and indicatives. He says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Oh, that's so helpful in tying all of this together, because what Paul is saying, he's saying that the saying is trustworthy. What's saying? The saying is in verses four through seven, the gospel. Paul is saying, insist on the gospel or make it central, make it pervasive in the church why? So that, that's a purpose clause, so that the result of those who have believed in God may devote themselves to good works. You catch the order? Paul says, focus on the indicatives of verses four through seven, so that those who believe in God may do verses one and two. That's the correct order theologically. Now, I am way over my time but we're going to keep going. Because I want to answer the question, why does this even matter, right? Why am I laboring over these verses so much this morning? Let me give you two reasons. Number one, because the gospel changes our obedience from delight, I'm sorry, from duty to delight. This is so important. 
Again, trying to obey verses 1 and 2, the imperatives, without the indicatives of verses 4 and 7, that will actually lead you to legalism. That will lead you to thinking, I have to perform for God. I have to follow all of the rules in order for God to love me and accept me. See, legalism lacks supreme worship of God. It obeys, but it doesn't adore It's the gospel that actually changes this mindset of I have to obey to I get to obey. Or put it this way, the gospel changes our mindset from I should not to I need not. It's religion, it's this legalistic mentality that says I should not. I should not look at pornography. I should read my Bible every day. I I should not be anxious, right? But it's the gospel that changes that from I should not to I need not. I need not look at pornography because in Jesus, I have lasting satisfaction in him. Uh, It's not I should not. It's I need not make money my idol because God is my ultimate treasure. It's I need not be crippled by fear and anxiety because God is with me at all times and in all places. See, that powerful transition from I should not to I need not is centered on the gospel. And here's how it works. That obeying God in order to earn a status of acceptance before him is very different than obeying God from a status of acceptance in God. And Jesus is the difference. That in Jesus you are fully accepted before God. Colossians 3, you are hidden in Jesus. So when God looks at you, he sees Christ, and you are accepted in Jesus's righteousness. And so what that does with our obedience, it takes the burden off of our shoulders. So now we obey God, not in a sense of trying to earn acceptance, we already have it, but we now obey God out of delight and desire and thanksgiving to what Jesus has done. And man, is that a game changer. The power of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. So if your desire for obedience this morning is leaking, if, it's, if you feel like it's drained, the call is for you to come back to verses 4 through 7 and to soak your soul in them. And then secondly here, the the second reason why this matters, these verses matter, is because we give our feelings way too much power in our lives. So often we allow our feelings to dictate what we believe to be true. And we we do this without even realizing sometimes. Uh, I came across a, a, a John Piper quote about this. It's so helpful. He says that my feelings are not God. God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives. And sometimes, many times, my feelings are out of sync with the truth. And when that happens, and it happens every day in some measure, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather, rather, I plead with God. Purify my perceptions of your truth and transform my feelings so that they are in sync with the truth. That's so helpful, especially if you're feelings-oriented, feelings-driven. And this is just a reminder 
another reminder from a pastor who loves you, loves you enough to tell you the truth, that your feelings are real, but they cannot be authoritative in your life. Your feelings, yes, validate that they exist. And your feelings may or may not be bad in and of itself, but do not allow them to take the driver's seat of your life, determining the, the choices that you make and how you live. Your feelings are a wonderful caboose, but a terrible conductor. And if you're here today and you would say that you are feelings-oriented, feelings-driven, that you allow your feelings to shape reality rather than the Word of God, then the result is that your heart will continue to shrink, that your marriage will be negatively impacted, it will impact your parenting, it will impact your friendships. So Paul says, insist on the gospel, insist on these truths so that your feelings are informed by the gospel and not the other way around. Even as we now prepare our hearts for communion this morning, uh, we're actually going to apply verse 8 using this sacred uh, church ordinance that we use these elements, the bread and the cup, the bread representing the body of Jesus, Jesus' physical body, his life, that he died on the cross in order to save us. That's what the bread represents. And then the cup represents Jesus' blood that he spilled on the cross because he died. Like both of these elements are pictures of the gospel so that when we take them monthly, we can anchor our souls in the truth of the gospel and not in our feelings not in our circumstances. So even as we reflect, even as we taste these elements, it's another action step to tell your feelings where to go. That you can actually direct them and as, as they're being informed by the truth of the gospel. So my hope for you today is not that you just be warmed by the gospel or refreshed by the gospel, but that you would be invigorated by the gospel toward obedience to the one who saved you. Right? Imperatives flow out of the indicatives. I want to remind you also, if you're new or if you're not a believer, that communion and these elements are for Christians. It's for the family of God. And so if you're not a Christian today, we would ask that you would just let the elements sit there on the chair, but that you'd also consider becoming a Christian even over the next couple of moments. I encourage you to read verses three through seven and understand what Jesus has done for you, that today would be the day of salvation for you, that you'd put your faith in Jesus and turn from your sins. So church, as you reflect and think about what Jesus has done, take verses three through seven personalize them in your own life and allow Jesus's work on the cross to flood your heart. So take the next couple of moments and then I'll come back up and I'll lead us in taking of the elements. Church, as we take this sacred ordinance together, start with the bread. We're reminded that this represents the body of Jesus that died on that tree 2,000 years ago. Take the bread together. Now the cup representing the, the blood of Jesus that was spilled on the cross of Calvary to bring forgiveness 
of sins. Let's take the cup together. Let's pray together. God, we give you praise. We give you endless praise. As we think about and reflect on these verses in Titus 3 of of Jesus' finished work on the cross. God, we thank you for just the beauty of your mercy and your grace, that it's endless, that it goes on and on and on, that we cannot exhaust it. God, as we think about the fact that you died for us, that you died for sinners, we can barely believe it. And yet, God, I pray that you'd use this passage, that you'd even use our singing as we close to take these truths and to rub them deep inside our hearts. I pray that we would live out of our acceptance in you because of Jesus, that you would help us to be a people that are devoted to good works because of what Jesus has done. We give you endless praise in his name.